So I know, I know what you're thinking. Yes, Dr. Andrews does look slightly different today. He has dyed his hair just a little bit to make it a little darker. Um, it's the Mother's Day look to dye your hair back to black. Um, no, he's, he's sick, as Stephen said, and he, he asked me yesterday to take care of the sermon today, so I'm very thankful for this op opportunity, uh, but please keep him in your prayers, as he said he couldn't even get out of the bed yesterday. Um, secondly, today is Mother's Day, uh, and for many, Mother's Day is a celebration as we thank all of our moms for everything they've done in our lives. My own mother is watching versus live stream, so hi, Mom. Uh, I hope you're going to enjoy this sermon. Um, it's a day where husbands thank their wives for all they do, a day where children thank their moms for going above and beyond, and where moms can thank their own mothers for teaching them how to be moms. But for others, though, Mother's Day can be a day of difficulty, a day when you're reminded of pain from your past, a day when you remember where your mom was absent, or a day where you feel the weight of pressure that comes from needing your mom when she's already passed on, a day where you remember a relationship that has been broken, a day when you feel a loss of maybe you thought you were going to be a mother and that has passed. But wherever you are today on this Mother's Day, I'm very glad that you're here with us at Providence to worship the Lord. Now, some context as to what I've been doing since the last time you saw me preach a sermon in January and today. I took an entire semester of classes at Midwestern. As Stephen told you, I just graduated, so of course I now will only be accepting if you refer to me as Master Jacob. Um, <laughs> but I took a preaching class, and in that preaching class I got to preach seven sermons from the same book of the Bible. And in January I preached a sermon titled Titus in a Nutshell, Titus Power. Um, and after that, I was really interested in the book of Titus. So when they told me to preach from the same book of the Bible, I chose Titus. So I guess you could call me a bit of a Titus nutshell. Um, but when doctors at, Dr. Andrews asked me to preach today, I figured that you might like to hear the difference in those sermons. So I chose sermon number seven. That's what you're hearing today, my last and final sermon from that class. Uh, so if you think there is any improvement in my preaching from January to now, I will take any and all compliments after the sermon over in the welcome area. That's the welcome area. Uh, but if there is, uh, if you don't think I really improved, all complaints will be addressed to Midwestern faculty. So, so let me just pray to calm some nerves and then we'll get right into the sermon, okay? Father God, thank you. Thank you for each and every person in this room who has come to hear your word proclaimed. I pray that as I preach today, that it is only your words that come out. That these words will affect lives and change people to seek wholly after who you are. I pray that if I say anything that is not glorifying to you, that it just like goes in one ear and out the other. I thank you for all that you do in our lives, and it's in your name we've gathered and prayed. Amen. Okay, so who has greater loss? Who, who has greater access to lost people? Is it you guys in the congregation, or is it the pastor who preaches every Sunday? You might be inclined to think that it's the pastor preaching a sermon, spending his time in the Word each week, who reaches more lost people. Even now, as we live stream each and every sermon out onto Facebook, who knows which people the pastor might reach? Well, I'm, I'm here really today to tell you that it's not the pastor. Now, to find out, let's do a comparison and contrast, okay? We're not going to put the Venn diagram up on the board, but we can imagine it in our minds. 
So let's, let's be conservative. A pastor, he's expected to work 40 hours a week. And in that 40 hours, he's got to do, uh, let's see, hospital visits. He's got to do counseling. He's got to do sermon prep. He's got to lead the church. He's got to be the leader of the church. He's got to take care of day-to-day operations. He's got to attend business meetings. He's got to attend deacons meetings. If he's the pastor of a church with other staff, he's got to meet with those staff. Uh, He's got to attain... attend service projects, he's got to be involved in discipleship, and he actually has to give the Sunday sermon. If we're being completely honest, business meetings and deacons meetings take up 40 hours a week alone. Uh, So how is he going to be able to reach lost people outside of everything we expect the pastor to do? Now let's think of another person. This person, for comparison's sake, also works 40 hours a week. And this person, they may be a dentist, a doctor. They may work a desk job, a mechanic, a grocery store clerk, school teacher. They may be a student, whatever it may be, 40 hours a week. These people, at some point during the day, they interact with somebody. They're out there. They're out with their their fellow employees, fellow students, and they get a chance to talk to them for some amount of time. I bet these people in these jobs have far more chances to interact with any lost people than a pastor does. Because the only time a pastor really interacts with people who don't come to church on a, Sunday, a normal Sunday basis is if they stumble through the door on Sunday, <coughs> if they call the church because they just need somebody to talk to, if the pastor is very intentional about heading into the community to evangelize, Or if the pastor happens to be at Walmart and he's in a talkative mood to the person standing next to him buying Oreos. By the way, uh, if you haven't tried them yet, Oreo Cakesters, they're the best type of Oreo. You don't need to eat any other type of Oreo. They're nice and soft. They're gooey. They're the ones you need to get. But that's, that's really the only time that the pastor of a church really gets to interact with lost people. So why is it that so many people expect the pastor of the church to be solely responsible for all of the evangelism that happens in a community? How many people in church go about their lives without ever talking about Jesus sitting in, to the person sitting in the cubicle next to them? Do you know who's sitting in the cubicle next to you? Do you know what's actually happening in their lives? Because they could be anybody. They could be somebody who's considering suicide because they're at the deepest, darkest moment of their life. They could be a person who, has, who struggles with a pornography addiction, who needs freedom. They could be somebody struggling with homosexuality, alcoholism, guilt, depression, somebody who's lost a loved one. And you could be a light to their lives. You could share Jesus with them. In the Bible, we read many stories of these unexpected people who do big things for the kingdom. I mean, if you look at Matthew 8, and you read about the Roman centurion. So this guy, he's Roman, which means he's not a Jew, which means he has no context for who Jesus is. But Jesus interacts with him, and in verse 10 of Matthew 8, he says that he has more faith evident than all of Israel. A Roman centurion. Nobody would have expected any faith out of him, but he has more than all of Israel. If you think about that statement, guess who's traveling with Jesus? Jews, disciples, the 12 disciples. 
The Roman centurion has more faith evident than the 12 disciples. This really unexpected guy. He's pleased Christ more than his closest friends. So common people can do unexpected things for the kingdom of God. So don't just let the pastors of the church do all of the work. Because you don't know the impact that you can make in your local workplace. So today, you've probably guessed it by now, I'm talking about your local workplace. I'm talking about jobs and whatever your job may be. If you're a student or a mechanic or dentist or school teacher, whatever it may be, I'm hoping that today you can learn how to be a positive impact for Christ in your local workplace. Maybe one you never would have expected. So that's my purpose, for you to be a powerful witness to Christ in the workplace. So as I told you earlier today, this sermon was written in the context of a preaching class. This is sermon number seven, so we need some context to the passage. You might remember some of this from when I preached in January, you might not. So Paul is writing to Titus, uh, about being a church planter or a director of missions, as I like to refer to him as, or just the pastor of a church. And he's told Titus to establish elders in the local churches. This is chapter one. And he teaches that the elders must be able to lead the local church. And he says that elders lead the local church by teaching sound doctrine and rebuking those that teach false doctrine. Chapter 2 then talks about what happens to a person if they live according to sound doctrine. And there's my title for the sermon today, A Life According to Scripture, which is sound doctrine. So if you're here today and you are not a Christian, this sermon is written to Christians. A life according to sound doctrine, a life according to Scripture can only happen if you are a Christian empowered by the Holy Spirit, which God gives. So, let me tell you. Let me tell you about what it means to be a Christian. It means acceptance of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who despite being God, died on the cross. See, he came to the earth. He was born of a virgin. He was both God and man. He lived a sinless life, and he went to the cross for you and for me. And because of his death on that cross, he conquered death, he conquered sin, but yet he didn't stay in the grave. We just celebrated a couple weeks ago. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He appeared to many, and then he ascended to glory in heaven. If you're reading the Bible Studies for Life, um, Sunday School books, we uh, talked about this morning about what happens after that ascension. One day, he's going to return. And as Christians, we live in the hope of that eventual return and how we should live our lives accordingly. So while we were sinful and corrupt, Jesus' death offers forgiveness because he is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to heaven is through a confession of your sins and a belief in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And that's how you're able to live a life according to sound doctrine. Not because of your own power ability, but through the gift and, of the, and the strength of the Holy Spirit. And it's not an immediate process. It takes time which is why we're learning today about a life according to Scripture. 
but it is aided through your new relationship with Christ. So, chapter 2, there are five different lives according to sound doctrine. We read about it. We read about old men, how they live according to sound doctrine, by having a sound, healthy faith and with characteristics that reflect Christ. Then it talks about older women. Older women live according to sound doctrine by teaching younger women. They're actually called to be disciple makers, as well as putting their faith into action. Then Paul moves on to younger women who live sound doctrine by their lives at home, by learning from the older women in the faith, um, and being marked by characteristics of being kind, pure, and self-controlled. Then we get to younger women who are marked also by the actions of self-control, but younger men are called to be a model of good works. And what that means is that a younger man should teach with integrity, dignity, and sound speech. All of that is very evident in the first eight verses of chapter 2 of Titus. So we want to honor God with our lives and live according to Scripture. And then we get to these two verses. Now these two verses have to deal with the topic of slavery and biblical slavery. So I will have to take a couple of minutes to discuss what biblical slavery looks like uh, and then we'll get into our sermon today. So as you can see, I have much to discuss in the next 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, so let me read the passage to you, and then we'll get into the two ways that you can live according to Scripture in your place of work. I've been in Titus so much, I don't even need to put a bookmark there anymore. It just opens to that page. Okay, verses 9 and 10. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So, biblical slavery. In my undergraduate, uh, way back in SBU, feels weird now that I've got my master's degree, uh, but I took this Baptist history class. And as classes go, we had to give a, a bit of a project. And one class was assigned to talk about the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, if you don't know, the Southern Baptist Convention, it actually started, it split off from the, the Triennial Convention because Southern Baptists were pro-slavery. They thought the Bible argued for slavery. And so they, they taught this project. They taught about the history of the Southern Baptist Convention, why we started, and uh, about our history as a pro-slavery convention. And for the most part, this project was pretty good. They, they gave the facts, they gave the history, they moved on. Our teacher, though, he's a bit of a toughie. Uh, he, he reached out and he was like, hey, I got a question, though. Would you say racially-based slavery in the history of the Southern Baptist Convention is morally wrong? Four out of the five people presenting the project said, yes, morally wrong, shouldn't do it. Slavery, bad. We feel bad that it's part of our history, but it happened. One guy would not answer. You could not say very clearly that slavery was wrong. My professor continually clarified and made the question way easier to say, to answer. Yes or no, eventually was. The guy could still not answer. He talked for like 10 minutes about slavery and how it can be one way or another and how maybe it's justifiable in some circumstances or maybe not or whatever, but he could never say yes or no, is, right, is slavery wrong? 
So I'm here to say, I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to argue for the pros and cons of slavery. That'd be a little weird for me to do during a sermon. I'm here to say, today to say that slavery is absolutely wrong. In any sense, even in the context of biblical slavery, is it wrong? Slavery, where, which is the practice of trading and buying human lives as a commodity to be used or sold, is absolutely wrong. And it's one of the clearest indicators of the sinfulness of man. So in the first century, one of three people in Rome and one in five elsewhere was a slave. There are multiple ways that a person could become a slave. They could sell themselves into slavery. They could have been sold as a child. They could have just been captured in a war. They could have been kidnapped. They could have been a victim of piracy. Uh, or way uh, more ways. But there was one good thing. Slavery was not racially based. It crossed social lines, economic lines, uh, racial-based lines, national lines. And the quality of life of a slave did vary. There were slaves who worked chained together in chain gangs out in mines and fields. There were some who were more trusted. They were highly skilled workers. And then there were some who were trusted administrators, much like we see Joseph in the book of Genesis. Yet, they didn't receive all the rights that a person would have normally. And if a single slave decided to rebel against his master, what typically happened was every single slave was then killed, typically by crucifixion, much like our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the context to which Paul writes this letter. People unwillingly working a job against all of their desires and how their life too must be according to scripture. Unfortunately, the rise of Christianity did not lead to the abolishment of slavery. Like I said, the Southern Baptist Convention has history as a pro-slavery convention and the Bible has been used as an argument for slavery. And we must not be ignorant of this fact. The Bible regulates slavery, but it doesn't encourage slavery. But I do believe the Bible teaches that we should fight for the dignity and sanctity of every person who has been made in the image of God. We should argue for the image of God to be displayed as well. So while slavery may not be as much of an issue in today's America, in today's, our cultural context, uh, we must continue to argue for that equality of all people, and even in the workplace. So that's why I've taken the, co the topic of slavery and bond servants and then applied it to the workplace. But I could not talk about any of the workplace without first discussing the context of the original writing. So as mentioned previously, we're going to look at these two conducts. Employees live according to scripture, in the way they work, and through their faith. Our first point today is that you must live according to scripture in the way you work. That comes from verse 9. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. A little bit of verse 10 too. So you can live according to scripture in the workplace by the way you work. And we see that in that passage, two subcategories that an employee in the workplace is marked by two things, submissiveness and being well-pleased.
pleasing. So if you're taking notes, that'll be point A and point B, submissiveness being well-pleasing. And I will, I will constantly say employee in the workplace today. Now, I recognize that I am also talking about students and teachers and parents and whatever you may do, I think this can apply to your life. I'm specifically talking about workplace, but it can mean so much more. So, firstly, in verse 9a, we're talking about submissive. Paul states that slaves are to be marked by submissive to their masters in all ways. This word for submissive, it appears in the New Testament 31 times. And it literally means to be put under somebody else, to be subordinate, or to just obey. And it was typically used in the time to uh, designate a relationship between a superior officer in the military and his um, others, the people under him. I don't know why, I just forgot that word. Uh, so if you have served any time in the military, you know what it is like to be a subordinate serving a superior officer. That relationship is not conditional. It's not optional. You're supposed to obey your master fully in every single way, as if following the orders of a superior officer. You don't get to question them. You don't get to argue against them. You must follow them completely. So in the modern day, as an employee, you should be marked by this same attitude. So what does it mean to be marked by submissiveness or obedience in the workplace? Well, I would say that regardless of how unreasonable a boss is or how oppressive a situation may be, a faithful believer must willingly submit themselves in everything as long as they're employed in the job they are. Now, of course, I will offer up four exceptions to that rule because, of course, you do not want to do anything that is unbiblical. You don't want to do anything that's illegal. You don't want to do anything that's unethical or immoral. And through those four exceptions, I would argue that your obligation to not listen outweighs your obligation to listen. First and foremost, if they ask you to do something unbiblical. So, of course, don't break a law if your boss tells you to. Don't go out and try to murder somebody if your teacher says it's okay to murder. These, of course, are breaking biblical commandments, and they're unethical, and they're illegal. And we do this, we treat our superiors in the way we do through submissiveness and by obeying, because Paul makes it clear in Colossians 3.24, it is the Lord whom you serve. When you follow the will of your boss, you're really following the will of Christ. So as a Christian, we're called to a life of obedience wherever we may work. And let me tell you, we, we read about five different lives according to Scripture. You know what wasn't mentioned in there? Masters of slaves. So Titus works under the understanding that masters of slaves are not Christians. That's what Paul means here by neglecting to mention masters. So you're not just following the will of a boss who's a Christian. As a Christian in the workplace, you even follow the will of non-Christian bosses, of non-Christian teachers, of non-Christian leaders. That's what the Bible here calls us to do. Of course, again, I offered up four exceptions. You can live, you can follow them unless they ask you of those four 
exceptions. And of course, I'm happy to say that for the most part, your situation is optional. You get to choose your job these days. Paul was writing to people who did not get to choose what their job was. So if you're constantly in a workplace where your boss is asking you to do these things and you are not comfortable doing them, you have the option to leave. But we must recognize that the people who this was written to did not. So ultimately, as Christians in the workplace, our work is firstly to be seen as obedient. But our second sub-point, which goes hand in hand with this obedience, is what Paul calls well-pleasing. So there are two major interpretations to what well-pleasing means. It's either in action or in attitude. Are Christians to be well-pleasing by being overly nice in their jobs, being peacemakers, being um, doormats? Or are they to strive for excellence in their work by working hard at all times? And ultimately, we were talking about this last night at the Youth Family Night, uh, it came back to me, this commercial from like 2009 of this little Mexican girl who likes uh, both hard shell tacos and soft shell tacos. Uh, and so the, the whole, the commercial is about them like fighting each other about which is better, hard shell or soft shell. And so she goes, por que no las dos? She's like, why not both? And, my, and that's my answer. Are Christians supposed to be well-pleasing in attitude or in action? Both. You're supposed to be well-pleasing in your attitude and in your action. You must put on display for all to see the grace of God in your own work. And you must gladly serve, not begrudgingly. You must serve with joy, not resent. How often do you wake up in the morning for work, for school, for anything else, and all that comes out of your mouth is grumbles and upset? that you have to go put in hours to get paid, to work, to learn, whatever. Again, may I remind you that Paul is saying this to slaves, people who are unwillingly serving in the jobs they have, and they have no other option than to work joyfully. You get to work. They had to work. You get to be in the place that you are. Lots of us, we serve in jobs that we joyfully chose out of our own desire to work those. I don't know many people who would choose to be a teacher if they didn't love the idea of teaching. You get to teach. You get to be a student and learn things. You get to be a mechanic or dentist or whatever. You're not forced to be in that job. So through your job, be well-pleasing and share the love of Christ with everybody who you interact with. Because you are that person's one glimpse of Jesus. So show them the attitude that Jesus would have had in work. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the grace of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
So Christ, again, is your ultimate overseer. So work hard and do excellent work in whatever your job may be. And seek to please those who are in a superior position than yours. Because it's pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. Because to him belongs all the glory. So how do you work by being well-pleasing? Well, Paul clarifies. He says to not be argumentative or to not pilfer. Now, if you're like me, you do not know what the word pilfer means. Argumentative, pretty clear. We just talked about that, being to obey your superior offers. Pilfer, it's actually a word which kind of means embezzle, to steal. You shouldn't embezzle from your place of work. I hope that is clear. But you, you shouldn't also steal. Now, it might be hard to picture um, why embezzlement is so important not to do. Well, there's actually a story in the Bible of embezzlement. Did you know this? You read the book of Acts, you read about Ananias and Sapphira. These are two people who they, they had a piece of property and they said, okay, we're going to sell this property and all of the proceeds we get, we're going to give them to the church, the local church. That's what they said. Now, of course, they, they kept a portion of the proceeds back for themselves. They said, oh, we can keep this, but we'll tell everybody that we were so good and we were great people and we gave all of the money we made to the church. As you read that story, eventually they come to death as a result of their embezzlement. Now, of course, this is not a workplace situation. This is giving money to the church, but it does show the great trouble that an employee could take from stealing from the company. So Paul tells us in this second subpoint to be well-pleasing in our role as employees. So this wraps up our first point of living according to Scripture in the way you work. You should be marked by submissiveness and by being well-pleasing. And then Paul turns to his second subpoint that a Christian must live according to Scripture in the workplace through the display of their faith. How does one live according to Scripture? By displaying their faith. Is it as simple as putting up a sign or a picture in your cubicle that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Having some, some popular verses up on the wall so people can walk by and see that, oh, you have your scripture verses on your wall, you're good. Or is it as simple as just like telling people that you go to church on Sunday? Well, Paul clarifies. He gives us two subpoints here where he tells us that we must show faith and secondly, that we must model the doctrine of God. So show faith. How do we show faith? It says right here in verse 10, showing all good faith. Does that just mean listening to Romans 1.16, saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Yes, go, claim it in the workplace. Put your faith on full display for all of your coworkers and fellow students and whatever to see. Again, this is so people will see how we do our jobs and we can point to Christ as the reason why we work so hard. This verse is a bit of a linking verse. This showing good faith, it links the idea of being well-pleasing to this idea of showing faith. There are two major interpretations of this verse. Again, I'm going to say, ¿Por qué no las dos? Why not both? Uh, because is it showing good faith to God or showing good faith to your work? And that's how it links the two ideas. It's both. You should show faith to God by showing faith to your work. 
See, a Christian employee must be trustworthy, reliable, and dependable in your work. Does that sound like you and everything you do? See, I used to work in the cafeteria when I was at SBU, and several times a year we would work to clean uh, the cafeteria so that it could pass inspection. We would deep clean everything, we'd put foam on everything. It'd be a really hard week of work. So one time I was working during one of these deep cleaning weeks, and a buddy of mine had worked, decided to work with me. Um, Stephanie's smiling because she knows this story. Um, but we really did not feel like working that day. And so what we did, um, I got a mop and a squeegee, uh, and he basically, he got what was a big hose attached to the wall, and he just turned the hose on and sprayed water on the floor. And while he's spraying water on the floor, I get the squeegee, I stand in a single place, and I do this motion. And I think, you know, I think I did pretty good. I'm a pretty good actor because my bosses came by several times and they were like, yeah, Jacob and Ethan, you're working really hard today. It's like, yeah, totally. We're doing really good. I'm pushing water into a drain. The floor's clean. It's been clean for a week. We, that was the first thing we did. No, I'm not working at all. And I wasted an hour and a half squeegeeing the, the, the floor of the dish room. Is that your attitude towards work? That's slightly funny. It's a slightly amusing story. But as we've been talking about today, if you have that attitude towards your job, that's an attitude that is dishonoring to God. I wasn't working for the Lord. I wasn't working for the glory of God. If anything, I was working for the glory of me because I wanted people to either think I was funny or to think I was working hard without actually working hard. I was being lazy. So what is your attitude when you work? Is it to just get by through the day? Is it to make it seem like you're working hard? You know a lot of people in COVID would like get like a mouse program that would jiggle your mouse so teams would think you were, you were still at work even though you were like watching TV in the other room? Is that what you're doing? Is your faith truly on display through being lazy? Or are you pushing yourself towards excellence when you work? And these are questions we all must ask ourselves. As you interact with others and you do your job, as you go to school, sports, whatever it is, is your faith on display through your work ethic? Could people see you and without ever saying a word to you, know that you are a Christian because of how hard you work? Paul makes it clear that a Christian living according to sound doctrine displays their faith and displays God as the reason why they work. And in our second subpoint, he tells us to model the doctrine of God. Model the doctrine of God. And you see that at the end of verse 10. He says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. This is what a Christian must truly do. You must model doctrine. See, doctrine is so deeply important to the way we live our lives as Christians. Doctrine affects the way you read your Bible, it affects the way you practice your faith, and affects the way you live your life. So doctrine and theology are what the Bible teaches, guys. And you might be uncomfortable because those are $3 words, doctrine, theology. Some people are very uncomfortable talking about those things. But doctrine, as Paul has been teaching for the 10 verses of chapter 2, 
is something that you must live. Again, Titus 2.1 says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What does accord with sound doctrine? Your life. So according to that, your life must be a model and a reflection of the sound doctrine as you go to church, as you go to school, as you go to work, wherever you go. This word adorn, it comes from the Greek word cosmeo. You might not know what that means. Cosmetics. So uh, when you hear that word, cosmetic, you might think of something superficial, like makeup or something that you put in your house to look good. But that's, that's actually not what it means in its original cause, context. When Paul is talking about when he says cosmetics is a full life change, your entire life must be fully changed by the doctrine of God. In every respect, your life must reflect that doctrine from the heart outside. We're not whitewashed tombs. We're not glasses that are clean on the outside but really dirty on the inside. We're clean throughout, and our whole life is changed by the doctrine of God. And I'll finish it here. Charles Spurgeon, a great British preacher, commented on this verse, and he said, The life of a Christian, even as a slave, is to be an ornament of Christianity. Christ does not look for the ornament of his religion to be the riches or the talents of his followers, but to be their holy lives. This is godliness that is worthy of the praise of our Savior. So today we've seen two conducts of a Christian's life according to Scripture in the workplace. We've seen that there is submissiveness required in being a Christian wherever you work. We've also seen that you are to be well-pleasing. We've seen that you must live according to sound doctrine by the public show of your faith and by modeling it whatever you do. And this may all sound very practical, and that's in fact because it is. Paul is giving the application of earlier teaching of chapter 1. But I want to share just two things you could do this week to really practice the teaching of this sermon. To really live according to scripture in your workplace, in your school, in whatever you may do. Number one, work hard at your job. Work hard in your education. Whatever you may do, push yourself towards excellence. And this is not because a Christian must be perfect in everything they do. We're anything but perfect. We recognize that Christ is all that is good in our lives. But because it glorifies God and because it's commanded in Scripture. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Colossians 3, 23 through 24, I referenced it earlier. Whatever you do, do your work heartedly, as for the Lord and not for people, knowing that it is from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Remember that you're not working for human masters. Whatever you're doing, you're working for your heavenly master. So when people see that you work hard, they can say it's because we, you work to glorify God. And secondly, put your faith on full display wherever you go. Share God at work. We learn that we're supposed to show our faith and model doctrine, so do that. Don't be scared to talk about God with those who you interact with at work. Take the time this week to talk to your desk neighbor, your fellow barista, the janitor, your boss. Tell them about Jesus. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light 
of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, and your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So be that light within your workplace. Bring glory to God through your work ethic. See, we come to church to grow, to learn about God, to fellowship with other believers, but we're also supposed to leave this pro place and proclaim Jesus to whoever we come across, to the entire world. I mean, if you look even at the life of Jesus, he spent 30 years learning, working, growing, providing for his family through being a carpenter, and yet we also can tell that he shared God, the story about God through that time as well. We read about when he's 12 and he's at the temple and he's teaching people. In the same way, Jesus was working in those whole 30 years to talk about the kingdom of God. And then he starts his public ministry. And then he goes out also to preach the kingdom. And those 33 years are why we're here today. So yes, come to church, grow, fellowship, learn, but also go. Because in Christ, we are set apart to serve and glorify. And you may never know how the kingdom may change your local workplace or school or how you can impact someone and open the doors for evangelism just through those two things I mentioned earlier. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation for everyone. Romans 1.16. Live it out. There are people who are hurting, broken, downtrodden, and they may see your God-given joy in your work, and they may glorify God because of it. Now, I started this sermon talking about slavery, and as I close, I'm also going to talk slightly about slavery. Don't worry, it's not as long as last time. We were all slaves to sin once. The Bible talks about how you are a slave to sin. We were slaves to sin. And you may still be in slavery to some sort of sin. But God offers freedom from that. Through his death and resurrection, you can be freed from any sin you are a slave to. Yet, our freedom from sin brings us into another sort of slavery. The Bible is clear as this as well. We're not slaves to sin anymore, but we are slaves to God. We're slaves of Christ. Dr. Andrews talked about that last week when he talked about the introduction of Philippians. Paul introduces himself as a slave of Christ. And likewise, if you are a Christian, you are a slave of Christ as well. So in your slavery to Christ, everything that we've talked about today matters even more. Work hard in your faith. I'm going to close with Romans 6, 20 through 23 which talk about slavery to sin and the positives of slavery to God. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of sin is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you get your benefit, which results in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you feel God calling you today to a relationship with him, I'd love to talk to you about what that means. If you're called to be a member of our church or just need a moment of quiet.
quiet prayer, I'm here to help with that as well. Uh, we're going to sing a closing song. I'm going I'm to close us in prayer, so we're not going to have a benediction. We're going to ha- have our final song. Uh, and then, yeah. Father God, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for giving us the ability to read this word 2,000 years later. I pray that when we read this word, we don't let it just drip away, come in at one ear and out the other. I pray that this word affects every facet of our lives. I pray this week as we go to school, as we go to jobs, as we participate in extracurriculars, whatever we may do, we may work hard for the glory of you. Because we work for you, not for human masters, for you. Thank you for everything you have done in each and every one of our lives. It's in your name we gather, in your name we pray. Amen.